You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Okay, we're going to get started. Uh, my name is Professor Henry Reichman of the Department of History, uh, and I'm pleased to uh, introduce uh, an old friend uh, who I've actually known since we were freshmen in college uh, at Columbia, uh, Mark Rudd. Mark and I uh, reconnected periodically over the years, most recently uh, uh, just about a year ago at a, uh, a 40th anniversary commemoration of the Columbia University Student Rebellion of 1968. Uh, which was a, a very uh, moving and uh, enlightening uh, occasion, a possibility for us to, all of us, to reflect back on what we did right, what we did wrong, what we wish we'd known, what we now know. Uh, and uh, in the wake of that, uh, Mark had already been working on his memoir, and it has just recently been published, uh, Underground, My Life in, with SDS and the Weathermen. Uh, and for those of you who don't know what the Weathermen is, uh, or know wonder why a student radical would be involved in meteorological activities, um, you'll, uh, you'll, I'm sure, get that clarified. Uh, I want to set out some things. Mark, uh, <coughs> given his past, although he lives a rather, uh, I think, quiet and unassuming life these days in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, where uh, you retired from teaching, didn't you, Mark? I think. 26 years, I taught fractions at a community college. You heard it. So, um, but, uh, uh, Mark still remains, among other people, a controversial figure, and uh, uh, and I know there are people here today who have uh, both uh, uh, have all sorts of questions to, to ask Mark. Uh, we are happy to welcome anyone here, no matter what their views. Uh, the only ground rules we ask is that people not try to uh, monopolize the discussion. Uh, Mark will do his best to answer questions, uh, maybe to the satisfaction of those who answer them, ask them, maybe not. Um, but uh, uh, the format will be Mark will, I believe, read some from his book, talk a little bit about it, uh, and open the door to, uh, to questions, and, uh, uh, and then hopefully we'll have an interesting discussion. So uh, without any further ado, uh, I introduce Mark Rudd. Thank you. Um, um, okay, um, can you hear me okay? I'm, I'm losing my voice. And, and uh, louder? Okay, um, is there a PA system or is this, is this P, um, or is this the microphone for the camera? Uh, it, I believe there's a microphone for the camera. There is a microphone for the camera, but I don't know your PA system. Uh, is there a PA system? I, I'm just wondering. There is one here. Let's see if we can turn it on. Uh, um, um, the reason is I, I, I generally can um, project my voice in a room like this, no problem. Hello, 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 hello. It's probably this one. Volume. Uh, it looks like, I mean, it's on. Volume. Try to try to turn it up a little bit. See, try it now. This is this is the microphone for that thing. Oh. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, uh, I normally can uh, project my voice in a room this size with no problem, but um, uh, I, I, I'm, thank you. I'm uh, coming out of a two-week cold, and I'm just starting a, a book tour, and uh, I've been talking constantly, and so I'm going to uh, try to save my voice by not yelling, okay, uh, if you'll excuse me. 
I actually prefer uh, to not have the PA system, it, it, and, and I'd prefer to be a little closer, actually. Um, okay, um, I um, would like to, uh, normally, uh, or what I was planning to do, was to start um, by um, explaining a little bit about this book um, by reading uh, the preface, a very short preface, and um, uh, and then um, reading portions of the book, and then um, questions and answers. However, um, a group of people came with these questions, um, 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 and I uh, would be certainly willing to change my plan um, and, and just answer the questions. Um, however, as I read the questions, I, I realize that, that really um, I think that uh, a lot of these questions um, I can answer um, uh, 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 with the preface to the book, um, especially the, the question of uh, remorse. How do I feel about um, the things that I, were involved, uh, that I was involved in? So how about this? I'll... Um, uh, this is just a proposal, and if it's okay with you, um, we, we can do it this way. Um, I'd, I'd like to read a two-page preface, which will explain, explain about the book and about my attitude. And then we could take these questions, and then I can read portions of the book, and then we can just have an, an open question and answer. Would that be okay? With, yeah, okay. And do you do what you're gonna do. Do, <laughs> well, this is just a little modification, okay? Um, the, um, the book is called Underground. Um, d um, Hank, uh, uh, is it for sale? Do you know? You know, I thought the bookstore was going to be here to sell them, but either they aren't here, so I don't know. Okay. Um, the, um, it, um, I started writing it in 2004. Actually, I can explain that. That's explained in the preface. Um, it covers... Um, 1965 to 77, with uh, an epilogue uh, that involves certain events that took place after. Um, it, it, I think it, it might be the most useful if I just read this portion of the preface. It's not too long. For 25 years, I'd avoided talking about my past. During that time, I had made an entirely new life in Albuquerque, New Mexico, as a teacher, father of two, intermittent husband, and perennial community activist. But in a short few months, two seemingly unrelated events came together to make me change my mind and begin speaking in public about my role in Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, and the Weather Underground, things that happened to me when I was a kid. First, in March 2003, the United States attacked Iraq, beginning a bloody, long, and futile war of conquest. What I thought I, what I saw, despite some significant differences, was Vietnam all over again. As a reflex, I joined the anti-war movement with millions of others, just as I had done 38 years before, when I was 18 years old. From 1965 to 1968, the years of the big escalation of the Vietnam War 
and the maturation of the civil rights movement, I was a member of, of SDS at Columbia University in New York City, one among many hundreds who made as much noise and trouble as possible to protest the university's pro-war and racist policies. The organizing was good and the time was right, so the campus blew up in April 1968 with the largest student protest up to that point. Having been recently elected chairman of the Columbia chapter of STS, I was identified by the press as the strike's top leader, the impudent young 20-year-old with the megaphone. The cartoonist Gary Trudeau even created a Doonesbury character modeled after me, Megaphone Mark, a true icon of the 60s. And there was this cartoon, Doonesbury, and that's me, Megaphone Mark. As both the Vietnam War and the anti-war movement grew red hot, I went over the cliff with a tiny fragment of the much larger SDS. We thought we were living a line from the Rolling Stones song, Street Fighting Man. Think the time is right for violent revolution, but where I live, the game they play is compromise solution. My friends and I formed an underground revolutionary guerrilla band called Weatherman, which had as its goal the violent overthrow of the United States government. Confirmed idealists, we wanted to end the underlying system that produced war and racism. It didn't work. From 1970 to 1977, I was a federal fugitive living the whole time underground inside this country. Just a few months after the Iraq war began, the documentary movie, The Weather Underground, was released. The project of two young men, then in their 30s, Sam Green and Bill Siegel, the movie had been more than five years in the making. I am featured both as a contemporary talking head and also in archival footage as a 20-year-old revolutionary. Nominated for an Academy Award and broadcast nationally on PBS, the movie has been a great success with audiences and critics. It remains in circulation as a DVD and continues to be shown frequently in college and high school classes, stimulating much comment and many questions. The closing images of the movie show me as a befuddled, gray-haired, overweight, middle-aged guy observing that 30 years later, I still don't know what to do with my knowledge of who we are in the world. Then the film cuts to aerial shots of carpet bombing in Vietnam, and finally to a close-up of a skinny 20-year-old kid, the same guy with the same grief-stricken look on my face. This ending hits audiences like a blade going right to the existential gut of our problem. In the years since 2003, I've spoken and answered questions 
at scores of colleges, high schools, community centers, and theaters about why my friends and I opted for violent revolution, how I've changed my thinking and how I haven't, and most of all, about the parallels between then and now. Young audiences are hungry to know this history, sensing its relevance to today. They seem genuinely amazed to learn that once there was a group of young white kids from privileged backgrounds who risked everything for our anti-war, anti-racist, and revolutionary beliefs to act, quote, in solidarity with the people of the world. Sometimes passion doesn't rule the day. In the weather underground, I say I haven't wanted to talk about my past because of my guilt and shame. I never get to explain, in the movie, The Weather Underground, I never get to explain what I'm guilty and ashamed of, but it's implied. Much of what the weathermen did have had the opposite effect of what we intended. We deorganized SDS while we claimed we were making it stronger. We isolated ourselves from our friends and allies as we helped split the movement, the, uh, as we helped split the larger anti-war movement around the issue of violence. In general, we played into the hands of the FBI, our sworn enemies. We might as well have been on their payroll. As if all this weren't enough, three of my friends died in an accidental explosion while assembling bombs. This is not a heroic story. If anything, it's anti-heroic. Having made such disastrous mistakes on such a big level, even granted that I was 20 years old at the time, I spent decades doubting my judgment. It took me a long time to sort out what was right from what was wrong in my own history. But in conversations with young people since 2003, I've found that Weatherman's failures are less important to them than the simple astonishing fact that we existed. As a result of this ongoing dialogue, I've shifted my opinions some about my own past, and in doing so, I've rediscovered a voice that I bottled up for two and a half decades, longer than most of the people I was speaking to have been alive. I've also reclaimed what I can be proud of. Along with millions of other people, I was part of a movement of history. That's what a movement is, after all, a shift of history caused by millions that helped end the war in Vietnam. Combined with the civil rights movement, the period was American democracy's finest hour. Historical movements are not made of heroes, just ordinary people trying to do right. The movements of the 60s succeeded in transforming laws and practices concerning the position of black and other minority people in this country, and they helped stop a major war of aggression by our own government. That successful mass movements happened in my lifetime tells me they can happen again. The election of Barack Obama has liberated young people's political imagination and energy. 
I hope my story helps them figure out what they can do, what they can do to build a more just and peaceful world. At the very least, it might show some serious pitfalls to avoid. So that's the preface to the book. Okay. Now, um, there are 15 questions. Um, I think I'll um, read through them uh, very quickly uh, for you and um, 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 answer them or not. Uh, but mostly I will answer them. Uh, and um, then, uh, if, if uh, um, you want to engage in a debate, you're welcome to. You can, you're welcome to interrupt me at any time you like. I'm a classroom teacher by trade, uh, and I'm used to being interrupted. Uh, so I taught algebra for uh, and fractions for 26 years. So, uh, yes, sir? I'll pick you up on your invitation. Uh, before you get into the questions... Yes. Uh, the transformation that's suggested in the preface. Um, that's actually the whole book. <laughs> the, the book is about a, a transformation. Um, um, let me sort of describe the book. The it has three sections. The first section is about Columbia University. Um, from 65, when I got there in, um, thank you for the question, actually, I think that's very useful. Um, uh, 1965, I got there as an 18-year-old freshman uh, at Columbia University, and um, I, I um, um, immediately met people who were uh, already finding out about the war in Vietnam and organizing against it. Mostly, though, they were educating themselves, and, and, and I learned from them, people my own age or maybe a little older. Um, I turned 18 in June of 1960. Five. And the first thing I did, the day I turned 18, was I went and I, I registered for the draft. And um, I didn't think much about the Vietnam War, although uh, in, 19, um, in um, March and April of 65, the United States had committed main force troops, uh, Marines first, um, against the Vietnamese. It was very similar to 2003. Uh, but when I got to Columbia, I, I, I found this enormous, um, um, or not enormous, a, a small group of students who were learning about the nature of the war and were um, fighting it uh, and protesting it. And I joined them. They were cool people. And that's what the first part of the book is about. And it culminates in, in, uh, May of, uh, in the strike of uh, April of 1968 uh, against the university's involvement with the war and also its uh, racist policies toward the surrounding uh, community. Um, that first section I consider to be very positive. It's kind of um, my introduction to organizing. It's a tradition uh, that was that sort of came to us anti-war kids from the civil rights movement and from the labor movement. It's a very old American tradition organizing. So that first section is a kind of a positive. But then after Columbia is the second section is when um, I talk about the next two years, uh, 68 up through 70, when SDS, when my group in SDS, a little faction of a much larger organization, led it in a very bad direction. Hyper-militancy, 
talk about revolution. Um, we had an analysis of U.S. imperialism as being a system. I talked about that a little, but I could talk about it um, more. But we said, oh, we're moving into a revolutionary stage now. So we wanted more militancy, more uh, anti-imperialism, more radical, more talk of revolution. And that was a two-year period. And what happened was we went from good organizing to bad organizing. Then, um, uh, at the end of 69, we made a disastrous decision. My little group was by now in power in the national office of SDS. Um, 400 chapters in uh, high school and college campuses around the country. My little group was in power. And we decided to close SDS down, but to, to start a guerrilla revolutionary underground to use violence to overthrow the government of the United States. And as I, I mentioned in the preface, but, and there was a theory behind this, and it had a lot to do with um, uh, Che Guevara and, and, and things we learned from the Cubans, but it was a terrible theory. It was awful. And it, 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 it led us in a direction in which we isolated ourselves and we also were very arrogant towards everybody. And, and um, uh, we said, well, if you're not one of us, then you're no good. You know? And we thought we were the only, the only true revolutionaries. And it led us towards terrorism, towards a moment um, when we targeted, um, uh, uh, a group targeted, and I knew about it, um, a, uh, a dance at um, Fort Dix, a, a non-commissioned officer's dance. And I write about this in the book. And had the, the bombs gone off, probably um, innocent civilians would have died. And, and that was uh, fortunate that the accident happened and it killed three of our own people. And, and so that was the moment when I looked at it and I said, wait a minute, We're, there's something fundamentally wrong. And that was just the beginning. Because I was then a federal fugitive and um, I had to spend the next seven and a half years. But I realized in that first year, and it took me a long time, I write about this at length, to, to try to understand the nature of the mistake, um, how, uh, how I became isolated in, in my thinking and, and arrogant and that's really what the, the last part of the book is about, the coming to realization of that. Um, um, it took me years to actually break with the politics, the set of ideas. But by uh, uh, within a few years, four or five years, I was done with it all. You know, but I was still a fugitive. And so, the the book is kind of a coming of consciousness. It covers twelve years from sixty five to seventy seven, where I I go th I go from the mass movement into this kind of fantasy of violent revolution, and then come out and realize that all violence is wrong, and, and including so-called good violence or revolutionary violence. That's, that's what it's about. Yes, sir? Can I interrupt? Yes. Well, we could talk about the townhouse fire. Yeah. Uh, you say that uh, you and your cohorts had planned to plant a bomb at the uh, NCO club at Fort Dix, New Jersey, mm -hmm. on uh, August 6, 1970, when they blew themselves up making the bomb. Yes. Okay. Uh, you 
you're aware, of course, that there's no statute of limitations on murder. Am I correct? Yes. Okay. So if you are saying that you were involved in the planning of that bombing. No, no. I'm, I'm sorry. I said I knew about it. You knew about it. Okay. Yeah. But say, let's just say that you were involved in the planning of the bombing. That would make you uh, guilty of murder. It's suspect to arrest for murder. And uh, that's all left up to interpretation. I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. Um, well, I'm, 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 I'm not a lawyer. But, I, I mean, according to your argument, I did take a big risk by writing this, didn't yeah, I? Yeah, you did take a big risk, yeah. and uh, that's why I'm amazed that you would admit that you were sent into this thing in, in uh, 1970, because uh, the case is still open, and you could be charged with murder if they could determine that you uh, were part of the planning for that bombing. Secondly, uh, your remorse is all... I, I'd like to hire you as my attorney. No, I don't want to be an attorney. Okay. I'm, police, I'm an ex-police. Yeah. I, I don't want to be an attorney. But... Uh, my second part is I was on the scene the night of the uh, bombing of Park Police Station in San Francisco. In fact, I was the first radio car at the scene, and the first thing that I saw when I entered the parking lot was one of my buddies laying on the ground, another one getting up off the ground, having been tossed over the top of a radio car by a bomb planted by Bernadine Dorn of your. Well, well excuse me. If it were if if the bomb was planted by Bernadine Dorn, then she would be charged. Okay, wait a minute. Anyway, it blew up the business office, killed my sergeant by driving barbed wire fence post staples through his jugular vein, his eye, and his brain, and it wounded nine of my friends. Now, as far as this assertion of yours that if Bernadine Dorn had uh, planted the bomb, she would have been charged, that's not true. And the reason it's not true is because a judge deemed it that the evidence that was uh, acquired about your organization, the Weather Underground, uh, was inadmissible in court due to some wiretap uh, improprieties and other evidence that was gathered uh, that it went against the rules of evidence for court. Secondly, uh, Larry Graffel here, who infiltrated your organization, was personally told by heirs that Dorn planted the bomb. And the reason his testimony, even though he testified under oath before a grand jury and a Senate hearing, was not admissible in court is because if you knew anything about the law, you'd know that uh, hearsay testimony has to be corroborated by somebody that's on the scene, okay? Ayers wasn't, wasn't on the scene that night uh, of the, that the bomb was planted. Therefore, his telling Larry that, uh, that Bernadine Dorn planted the bomb was not... I, 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 you know, if all, oh, the truth of the matter is I don't know anything about that bomb. I don't believe you. Why were your fingerprints found in the Pine Street Bomb Factory in San Francisco then? In the book, I talk about a, a, um, an apartment on Pine Street, um, which I lived in for a time, um, mid-May, or mid-1970 to about uh, the first few months of 1971. I think that factory, that factory, that apartment rather, was, was busted by the FBI uh, sometime, I don't have the date, but I think it was early 1972. So, the first I know about that factory, <laughs> apartment, was 1970, mid-1970. I lived there. I don't know anything about bombs being manufactured there, and I... Uh, I lived in that apartment. But they found bomb-making material. In, in, in but that was in 1972. Listen, if you want 
it's fine to bring all this up to the law enforcement authorities, but I'm telling you, which I would tell them, I don't know anything about it. I never heard about it. I will tell you this. I was high enough in the Weather Underground Organization in February of 1970. I was kind of on my way down. This is another thing that I talk about in the book. Um, I was one of the founders of the organization, but sometime at the end of 1969, I, I lost self-confidence. I, I, I lost this, I had been posing as a great revolutionary leader, but in fact, I was just this kid. I didn't know a lot of stuff, and I, I was way over my head. And so I lost self-confidence, and I wasn't able to exert the kind of rah-rah leadership that, that was needed. So I was demoted, and I demoted myself in the organization, starting from the end of 1969. And I write about that in detail. However, I was still, it was a centralized organization, and I was still close enough to the top of it that I would have known. So all these years, I never heard a word about the Park Street bombing in the organization as if we were involved. Now, Mr. Grathwall says one th he heard one thing. I didn't hear anything, and I was a lot closer than Mr. Grathwall. But I don't know what, I, you know, all I can tell you is I don't know anything about it, well, and I don't believe that my organization, the Weather Underground, was involved. The FBI has blamed that bombing on the weather underground, but uh, Mr. Grafwall has testified under oath before grand juries, before the Senate. Have you ever been asked by any authorities to testify under oath about the Pine Street bomb factory or the uh, police park station bomb? No. No law enforcement authorities have ever contacted you about that? Um, uh, a, an agent by the name of Bill Root. Uh, from the FBI ter Anti-Terrorism Task Force, visited me in 2003. I never talked to him, but he talked to my lawyer and said they were interested in talking to me. That's all I know. Who was your, who was your lawyer? Nancy Hollander in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And they never followed up? And, and <laughs> yes, yes, sir. The term weatherman, could you give us a little history of where you got that term? Yes. Yes, thank you. It's it's a kind of a, 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 a an involved. It, it, it it's a, it's a kind of a, a cool name, the weatherman, and it, and it comes from a line in a Dylan song. Um, but but the actual story of it is is kind of convoluted. So you'll have to bear with me. Uh, it'll take me a second to explain it. What happened was, okay, there was a faction fight in SDS. Now, I have to tell you that some people, um, just as a side, who have read my book have said to me, God, there's a lot of faction fights back then. People, you guys were always fighting each other. And um, th th that's right, there were. But I probably put only 5% of the faction fights in the book because you wouldn't want to read about it. It was just too much and too esoteric, the, the points of, uh, right? Well, here was a major faction fight around an esoteric point. And what happened was, as SDS transformed into something beyond 
the anti-war position. See, the anti-war position was stop the war, bring the troops home. That was the anti-war position. But for us, this is true, I think, I can, I can generalize for, for, for 100,000 people on hundreds of campuses. It wasn't quite enough. We wanted to say that there was a system responsible for this war and that it, is, it is, involves uh, the, the uh, desire for um, global control. Uh, we called it imperialism. And, and that the goal of the United States, that Vietnam was being fought as an, uh, uh, um, to stop a country from seceding from the empire. We called that anti-imperialism. That led us in a direction of Marxism. And in Marxism, it's, now think back, it's a bunch of intellectual kids, kids with ideas. They read a lot. And they're trying to figure out how will revolution take place? In classical Marxism, this question is always uh, uh, being discussed. And usually, there's, there's identified in classical Marxism what's called an agent of change. Who will lead the revolution? How will it happen? So my group identified national liberation struggles, meaning um, uh, Vietnam, Cuba, um, countries of Latin America, uh, countries in, in Africa, um, um, fighting to free themselves from foreign domination, especially uh, US domination. Internally, non-white people, especially um, led by uh, the Black Panthers in Oakland and, and, and uh, other non-white people who were colonized as, as a, a nation, uh, racism being part of that, and held down, oppressed. Uh, and exploited um, would also rise up. So there was a worldwide rising against U.S. imperialism, which we called national liberation movements. So we said, okay, my faction said, we think that third world liberation is what's happening, and we as white people should support them. Okay. Meanwhile, another Marxist group, we were kind of like regulars, you might say. We were descended from the lineage of the people who founded SDS, like Tom Hayden. Um, um, we were uh, tended to be not ideological, although we became more ideological. An external group, which was a Maoist party. Now, I'd have to explain who Mao Zedong was, right? Mao Zedong was this guy. <laughs> And there was a revolution in China, and there was a whole theory associated with Mao Zedong of how revolution worked. But there was a party. Of, there were many Maoist parties. This is not the Communist Party of the United States. This is a different party. It, it was called Progressive Labor. One of the things about Marxists is they like to fight with each other over who has the, the correct position. And they like to split. It's not unlike the, the Christian the history of Christianity. I mean, you know, they fought wars over differences of, 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 of biblical interpretation and theological and, the, you know, who had the true gospel. But it's, 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 it's a thing that happens. A friend of, it, of mine has always called it the narcissism of small differences. It means you have somebody who's quite similar to you, but you make a big deal. It's, I think that's a Freudian term. So, Along came this external party 
called the Progressive Labor Party, and they had a different position. In S now, they joined SDS, and they used SDS as a way of recruiting for their party. And their position was, it's not non-white people who are leading the struggle in the world. It's not even the Vietnamese. It's the workers. Now, how did they know this? Well, Marx and Engels wrote it in 1848, in the Communist Manifesto. So it's kind of biblical. It's, it's, you, you go back to original fundamental writings and it's the workers. And so we had this big old argument that lasted for months and it had certain implications around race and, uh, and how white people feel towards non-white people and how uh, middle-class people feel towards workers and who are the workers and this goes on and on and on. And, and I, I, um, I, I tried to be, um, uh, um, uh, uh, nice to my readers, and I, I brought it down to about a paragraph, right? <laughs> but um, uh, books were written about this whole internal struggle. And at the time, we thought it was the end of the world, and we'd, we'd have fist fights, fist fights over it, and hit people, each other, and it was crazy. It was totally, you know, not so. And it came to a head in, um, are, are you sorry now that you asked the question? No. Okay. It came to a head in um, uh, June of 1969 at the, uh, what, what turned out to be the last national um, convention of SDS. Usually there was one SDS meeting a year, which was called the convention. Um, and this happened, uh, as I say, June 1969. I have a whole chapter on it. It's called SDS Splits. And at that convention, our little faction produced a paper. And the paper essentially said, world revolution is happening. It's happening through national liberation struggles. We can't be racist. We have to support these struggles and do what we can to build support. It was a long paper. And there's a lot to be said about that. And you know, I, 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 I try to be merciful to my readers, and I, I condense the paper down to about a paragraph or a paragraph and a half. But the night before it went to the printer, we needed a name for it. We didn't have a name. So um, a few of us who were involved in the writing of it uh, were sitting around. And um, one guy blurted out, uh, his, his name was Terry Robbins. And he, um, a few months later, died in the townhouse. Uh, Terry Robbins was a Dylan fan. And suddenly it came to his head, you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. It's from uh, Subterranean Homesick Blues. It's a brilliant uh, um, um, uh, song, you know, it's got all kinds of great lines. Must bus in early May, orders from the DA, look out kid, no matter what you did, God knows when, but you're doing it again, you know, and all that kind of stuff, you know, the pup don't work because the vandals took the handles. And uh, 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 Dylan probably didn't even know what he was writing, he just wrote it. So um, everybody said, yeah, that's it. You know, maybe we were smoking a joint or something and, it, you know, it, 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 it seemed right. Well, essentially, the meaning of it is this. You don't need Marxist biblical texts to tell you what's happening in the world. Just look out and look at what's happening. And that's what you don't need a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. Thank you for asking that question. <laughs> Mr. Rudd, given the most lenient interpretation of your actions in the past, 
Um, you were part of a conspiracy that resulted in the death of numerous individuals. How does it feel to be a murderer? I was part of, uh, I was an intellectual author of, of a strategy. Um, I am not very, um, uh, I, I do not defend that strategy. Um, I write at length in the book, especially uh, in the epilogue, uh, about uh, an event that I had nothing whatever to do with, but in a sense I do uh, think that I was um, um, uh, wrong in promulgating ideas 11 years before that might have led to it. It's the Brinks robbery in 1981, and I talk about it in the epilogue of the book, and I also talk about my own response to it. Um, I, uh, this whole book is dedicated to nonviolence. I've spent decades of my life trying to figure out my own part of this. And that uh, is my answer. I um, uh, have um, gone through periods of silence uh, when I didn't feel good about myself. I'm not sure how well I feel about myself. I just feel it's a necessary story to be told. And I would like to refer you to my book because I think I talk about it honestly and accurately and I tell the whole story. Of course, you never uh, pay for your crimes. It, you know, paying for crimes, wait a minute, paying for crimes is a rough concept. Who pays for which crimes? Um, you could have stopped the, uh, the, the, bomb, I, the bomb making that resulted in the deaths of three of your, quote, comrades. And I talk about that, and I, I have absolute remorse till the day I die for that. And, and have you uh, decided to dedicate the proceeds of your book? Uh, listen, if there are any proceeds to the book, they're all going to be given to peace and justice work. How, what kind of cash advance were you paid by Rupert Murdoch for this book? I got um, $25,000, this is no secret, um, uh, when I signed, and I got another $25,000 uh, when I um, uh, turned the manuscript in. 15% uh, went uh, um, uh, to a, uh, my agent, and the rest went up my nose for coke. <laughs> yes, sir. Oh, well, you know, the, it's commonly uh, said that the, the, the current, the modern contemporary women's movement comes out of the new left in reaction to the male domination in the new left and the, and the sexism. And, and um, we had a, a, a reunion. I talk about this also um, at the, um, uh, um, uh, in the epilogue of the book. Um, um, we had a reunion uh, a year ago um, at Columbia University, and um, a, a, about 50 black people who were involved came. And their message was to talk about their experience and also the fact that they hadn't gotten credit for leading the strike. But Mark Rudd and SDS had, and I talk about that at length. Then a number of women came. And they talked about the fact of all the hard organizing work they had done and the leadership they had exerted, especially at certain tactical points. Like there's this, this moment that I discuss where I, uh, in, on April 23rd, I think Hank, you were there, and, and Les, you were there, I don't know, uh, uh, where we didn't know what to do. We just didn't know what to do. And I'm supposed to be the great leader. Right, and there's this, all these people, and we're 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 in front of Low Library, and we're locked out, and somebody yells, "To the gym site! To the gym site!" Well, 
for 40 years, I never knew who the somebody was, but these two women, um, uh, uh, one of whom, uh, Bonnie uh, Wildorf, lives here in the Bay Area, they stood up at the reunion and, and they said, we were the ones, <laughs> we did it. You know, and they had never gotten credit for this leadership role. And uh, the whole place broke out in pandemonium, you know, and uh, they got a standing ovation and cheers because the, the women did not get credit. The men were the theoreticians, the men talked, the men postured, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and, and I talk about my own stuff in it, you know, including the, my own sexual op opportunism. I had access to lots of women and it's all in the book, you know. Um, I'm not very proud of that. I was a 20-year-old kid, and I, I took my opportunities where I could, but uh, um, I, I think I learned a little bit about it. This is not a, a, a heroic book. It's not justifying murder or anything else. I just want to, um, just if I may, mention uh, the question of paying a price. The One of the things that, that made me heart sick, despairing for my country, was that the United States was in the process of killing three to five million people in Vietnam. Now, you, you may disagree, it was a war, but there are, there are statistics that have been gathered about the number of dead people in this war of choice. I was heartsick about this. Three to five million people is a lot of people. I do not believe that the architects of that war some of whom are still alive, like Henry Kissinger and, and Robert McNamara, have ever paid a price for that. And, and I think that, that if we talk about paying price for violence, I am absolutely willing to stand up. I have talked about my role in violence. I would like to ask people who sent young Americans to Vietnam to murder people there, to stand up and talk about their crimes. And then I think after the recognition of all this fact that comes out, then we can talk about paying price. But I would hope that our solution would be reconciliation. But we're talking about your individual case though, Mr. Rudd. Uh, to, you know, to be perfectly honest, I'm having a difficult time wrapping my mind around what you seem to believe which is that the statement of simple contrition is sufficient to atone for the crime of murder. Well, first, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I don't consider myself uh, to be a murderer in a legal sense, but in an intellectual sense, um, I chose the path of revolutionary violence, which I thought was, um, uh, and I advocated that. Um, some people did die, and, and um, I think... I don't know what to say about it. If you want to charge me, you're more than welcome to. Why yes. Don't you just, why don't you I think I gave you plenty why don't you of evidence. Go to the authorities and tell them everything that you know. I have told everybody everything. You could very easily go to the San Francisco Homicide Division and talk Excuse me. I, I, there is nothing I know about anything of this that I have not written in this book. Wait, come on. Come on. You made your point. Okay. Hasn't the U.S. the U.S. judicial system established your culpability and it has been basically zero? The U.S. judicial system has made its judgment on this man. You may have an axe to grind. I'm not asking right? you. We're asking him. You're not a. You're not, you're not asking him, you're telling him. Okay, I'm asking a question. Let's just try to let Mark, you can call on people okay. to speak, but everybody has, should have an opportunity to speak. Okay. Yes. Thank you, Hank.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.